Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And welcome to Radiotherapy. And whether you're listening to us on your old retro radio or you're live streaming us through the Triple R app, or maybe you're even demanding us tomorrow via the on-demand service, or maybe you're even potting us by the podcast. You are part of the Triple R Radiotherapy family. And why have I just said all this? It's because I want to say thanks. We want to say thanks for listening to us for all these years. You know what the best way of giving thanks is? It's by giving. And today on the show, we are giving with both hands. First up, we'll be chatting with Professor Alan Chang, who's on the blower. Woohoo! Well done, if you pen. Uh, Alan is from the Alfred Hospital, and he is an infectious disease specialist. And uh, Alan has been doing lots and lots of interviews about the coronavirus, or by its brand new name, COVID-19. Now, the landscape is changing so quickly with this uh, virus that it's really hard to keep up. And that is exactly what Alan will be helping us with today. Dr. Jade Bellardi is a senior research fellow in the Central Clinical School at Monash University. I know that school well. And an honorary research fellow in the Department of General Practice at uh, the University of Melbourne. Two universities. She's a social researcher who specialises in women's sexual and reproductive health, primarily focusing on improved miscarriage support for women, partners and family. And today, Jade will be telling us the latest research on miscarriage in Australia and from around the world. Professor Meredith Temple-Smith is Deputy Head of the Department of General Practice at Melbourne Uni. A mixed methods researcher. I love that term, mixed methods research. I've got to ask her about that. Her interests center on sexual and reproductive health, hepatitis C, and health services research. She is uh, highly respected for her knowledge on both theoretical and practical methods for the uptake of complex interventions in primary care, and we're getting more and more of those. And we're very lucky to have her in the studio talking with us about what's new with gonorrhea. It's a big show spanning all the way from viruses to reproductive health. So why don't you stay with us for the next hour of radio therapy? This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Good morning, EpiPen. Morning. Good Am I on? You're on. You're on, baby. You're on. <laughs> I'm rusty. You're so on, EpiPen. And uh, Dr. G-Spot, you're on as well. Lovely to be back. Thank you so much, Dr. Mouth Practice. 2020, here we come. This is our first show for 2020. It is. I've been so sad not to be on the air. So grateful to be back. I get withdrawal symptoms when I'm on the air. I love chatting to you guys. Hey, so on the phone we have Dr. Uh, Alan Cheng, Professor. Professor Alan Cheng. Alan, thanks, thanks for uh, for coming on the show this morning. L- let me just ask you a question. Now, let's just suppose that for the last mm, two and a half months I have been on Mars. I know nothing about <clears throat> this new virus. Can you just tell us right from the start to where we are now uh, about uh, the the novel coronavirus? 
Yeah, so um, coronaviruses are quite a common group of um, viruses. They, there are a couple of them that um, cause the common cold, so they're not um, completely unknown to us. But there have been a couple of really important ones over the last um, a couple of decades. So yep. there was the SARS coronavirus in 2002-2003. Yep. Um, there's been the MERS coronavirus in, um, uh, mainly in Saudi Arabia, but um, with outbreaks elsewhere in um, 2013, I think it was, um, till now. Um, and then this uh, new one that emerged um, probably in in December um, uh, 2019 um, that uh, has emerged in um, Wuhan city in uh, Hubei in, mm-hmm. in uh, China. So since uh, then, it's um, really spread um, to, I think, 28 countries now um, mm-hmm. and um, to most uh, provinces uh, in China. Um, it's a little bit hard to get a handle on this because when we often look at uh, new viruses, um, we always find the sick cases first because mm-hmm. that's where we're looking for uh, new things. Um, so the case fatality or the proportion of people that die um, uh, in Hubei seems to be quite high, but that mm-hmm. probably is reflecting that we're not picking up people that aren't very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ones that um, are diagnosed outside of Hubei, um, so even in mainland China, but also elsewhere in the world, um, seem to be much less unwell, mm-hmm. but there still are deaths um, reported. So um, just getting a handle on that um, proportion of people that, that die is going to be quite important. And then the other sort of parameter that's really important is, is how infective it is. And yeah. um, it, uh, it's looking like it's, I think I've described it as, as flu on steroids, it's, uh, the, the um, case of health is slightly higher and the transmissibility is probably a little bit higher as well than, than influenza. Hmm. Just on that point about the uh, infectivity, uh, I know that you guys, that is infectious disease people, use a particular scale about infectivity. Um, and I'm, is, it, is it measles where one person can infect, is it 18 people, is that right? Yeah, or, so yeah. 15 to 18 other people. So this is what's called R0. Yeah. Um, and the concept comes from demography. So, you know, if um, a woman has uh, on average two children that places her and um, the partner, then uh, then that the population is stable. And so with the with R0 for infectious diseases, we sort of say one. So if one person causes... Um, one other infection, then uh, that uh, um, infection will be stable. If mm-hmm. it's less than one, then it will tend towards um, uh, extinction. And if it's more than one, then you get um, outbreaks occurring. And with the coronavirus, this novel one, is it uh, what, what number are we looking at there? Yeah, it's, so it's, uh, it, uh, so the initial estimates are sort of between two and three. Yeah. Um, with influenza, it's probably um, seasonal influenza. It's probably sort of one and a half, or a bit less than that. Yeah. Um, with uh, pandemic influenza, it's probably a little bit higher. Yeah. It's probably important to say that it's very context specific. So um, it, just because it's two to three to start with doesn't mean it always stays like that. Oh. So control measures will change that. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, um, the situation, um, you know, the situation in China. It, relatively crowded, um, it's a large city, um, you'd expect it to be higher there than um, perhaps other, some other place. Yeah. Um, Alan, it's EpiPen here. Um, are we learning anything about the boat, the Princess Diamond that's been quarantined about infectivity? Is there anything that people are documenting or learning from what's happening on that ship? Um, yeah, it's been a little bit difficult to find out exactly um, what's going on there. There's certainly um, quite a high attack rate, um, which uh, so I can't remember exactly how many. It's, I think almost 200 or perhaps just over 200 of the 3,000 
um, people on that boat have uh, got this. I think one thing that's been difficult to work out is how many of those cases occurred before they realised what was going on um, and were able to sort of put lock the boat down and put it into quarantine and so on. And the sort of time pattern of the cases suggests that maybe most of that occurred before um, they put they locked down the um, the boat. But um, obviously that's a really important point to work out um, because um, you know it'll be important to work out when they uh, can uh, stop worrying about it and get the people off I think yes and um, are we what about the figures are we uh, some people are saying that's peaked some people have said that it's dropped in the number of cases is do you have a sense of where we are in the middle of this disease process uh, it's difficult to say I think it, it possibly is different in um, Hubei than it is uh, everywhere else so even in other parts of China um, the case numbers are uh, the growth in case numbers is slowing, um, which it means it's still growing, yeah. but uh, not perhaps at the, quite the same rate. Um, outside of um, China, particularly in Hong Kong and Singapore, there's um, a bit of concern that they're finding cases that are not linked to other cases, um, and they're usually pretty good at uh, detecting these sorts of things. Um, so uh, there's a lot of work being done there. But the, outside of China, the case numbers are still relatively small compared to within China. And then in Hubei, um, I think it's difficult because uh, by all reports, the, the health system is becoming a little bit overwhelmed and you know, just with the volume of tests and so on, it would be difficult to keep up. Um, they changed their case definition to, um, to include uh, people that um, had changes on chest X-ray or CT scan mm-hmm. um, uh, a couple of days ago, and that sort of was a big jump in numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit hard to get a handle on uh, figures within Hubei. But I think the, the feeling is that, that the infectivity seems to be slowing a bit, but is that enough to make it a peak is probably not quite yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so would you confer with this that the best advice for people that are listening is to go to the Department of Health Victoria website and get the latest information that's being updated daily, is that correct? Yeah, and I would also say that um, yeah, in Australia in Australia, we've had, I think, uh, 15 cases and none of them have been diagnosed, um, you know, in the last, uh, since the 1st of, um, of February. Uh, so, you know, the case numbers in Australia are very, very low. We don't think, as far as we can tell, that there's any ongoing um, transmission within Australia, so the risk to Australians is, is low at this stage. Um, so everyone can go on to go on with their you know, normal lives. That's reassuring. Going to Chinese restaurants and so on. Yes, yeah. yes. you're very important. Do you know what, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I think about late at night, Alan, is how something so small, um, and it is microscopic, a virus, can have so many social repercussions, you know, um, from all the way from, um, from, you know, getting people very, very ill and, you know, some people dying from it. And then what spreads out from there is, you know, fear. And there have been, there's been lots of talk about r- uh, racist comments, comments and, and behaviours. The economy, tourism, um, all these things from a, a tiny, tiny little thing. I mean, you know, when you went into infectious disease, did you think that you would be dealing with something like this, you know, 10 years down the track? Was it always on your mind that something like this might happen again? 
Um, to tell you the truth, when I when the trash is, I probably didn't even know much about Corona. <laughs> um, You're honest. You do um, now. I, I, yeah, I do now. Um, and uh, certainly wasn't on, on my radar. I think, I mean, that's a really interesting point, and I think it's probably a discussion for another day, but yeah. um, sort of the interaction between infectious and social culture, and, um, you know, there's a whole lot of, I went to a talk recently about um, the impact of pandemic influenza on art and uh and, and uh, you know, it's fascinating um, sort of the major impact that um, these things can have. So there we have it. Live on Radiotherapy, Professor Alan Cheng has confirmed that he will be coming onto our show to talk about <laughs> art. Oh, Alan. oh, Alan, look what you've done. <laughs> See what you've done. Thank, <laughs> thanks so much, Alan, for taking the time. We know that you're an incredibly uh, busy man, especially at the moment, and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr Jade Bellardi, we're very lucky to have you on the show. Jade, I just wanted you to give us very briefly an overview of your research and also how you got into this area. Thanks, Dr G-Spot. Um, so... My colleague and I, uh, Professor Meredith Temple-Smith, got into this area probably about three years ago now. We've both been working predominantly in the area of sexual health and we got into this area about three years ago and so we've been doing um, a number of sort of small studies around women, men's healthcare professionals' um, experience and care of people affected by miscarriage. So I got into this area personally um, due to my own experiences of miscarriage and that's what's prompted me to want to try to improve support for miscarriage. Well, thank you very much for that, Dr Bellardi. It's interesting, isn't it, how often it's, it's a personal event in one's life that sets you off on a career uh, trajectory. I know that, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues too, same thing. Like you, there's something that happened, um, whether it was a, a, a family member with mental illness or uh, with an intractable uh, um, rheumatological disease, and then these people went off to, to study that. So it's often that that is a very common reason, I think, for for going into a particular career path. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's a, I guess it's a good motivator. Yeah. And I suppose for me, I had um, both positive and negative experiences in terms of support, both mm. social support, and um, I had some. Uh, experiences with healthcare professionals, again, positive and negative, but they really stuck in my mind, mm. um, which a lot of women speak about as well, you know, having these experiences and they, they're quite long-lasting memories. Do you think you could give us an example of one of those experiences, Jade? I could. Well, I can give you my personal example. Um, so I've had um, three miscarriages and when I had my first miscarriage, I remember... Um, I had been spotting and I went to my doctor um, who referred me on for an ultrasound. I didn't have my partner with me at the time. I didn't really, honestly, I didn't think there was going to be anything wrong. And so I went to the ultrasound and I remember the sonographer uh, was yeah, checking things out uh, to make sure all was okay. And then she just very casually said to me, oh, it's just a blighted ovum. And I said, oh, sorry. What's, what's that? Oh, it means your pregnancy started and then just stopped. There's nothing really there. Mm. And that was that. And you can hop up now and get dressed. Mm. And I was 
um, devastated, understandably. I was I was six or seven weeks pregnant at the time, but um, I remember just being shocked and really struggling to walk outside, uh, walk out and pay and all these beautiful pregnant women around me. And I just barely made it to, to pay and just, that was it. I lost it. Um, and I... I, that does stick in my mind because of just really the, the lack of sensitivity as compared to an experience with my next miscarriage where I was in hospital for a DNC and um, the anaesthetist, the first thing that he said to me was, I'm so sorry to hear about your miscarriage. Only a few little words, but those words meant the world to me and he was very caring, explained everything he was doing, um, and I actually ended up writing him a card <laughs> about a week later just to say that meant so much to me. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Um, so two very differing experiences that um, yeah, have really stuck with me. And just how common is miscarriage, Jade? Okay, so we say uh, up to one in four. It's hard to um, give a definite number because a lot of miscarriages occur before uh, women even know that they're pregnant. So they often assume it's just a late Mm. period or Mm. a heavy period and they don't actually realise that they were pregnant and that they've miscarried. Wow, so one in four is likely to be an underestimate. Yes, it is very much likely to be an underestimate. And so in Australia, when you look at birth rates, that equates to around 285 miscarriages a day, affecting around 104,000 couples a year. Right. Just the definition of a miscarriage, could you tell us what that is? So in Australia, a miscarriage is defined as pregnancy loss before 20 weeks, and that differs by country. So, for example, in the UK, miscarriage is defined as pregnancy loss before 24 weeks. And after that, it's a stillbirth? And after that, it's a stillbirth. So in Australia, after 20 weeks is a stillbirth, and under uh, 20 weeks or under is a a Mm. miscarriage. And so it's so common, Jade, but... It seems like we're actually quite bad about talking about miscarriage. I know that I I sometimes struggle to know what to say to someone who's been through that experience. Yes, we, we don't talk about miscarriage a lot. And I think it's because it is that unseen loss. You know, um, a lot of the time we have the 12-week rule where we don't disclose um, pregnancies until it's considered safe or safer after 12 weeks. Um, and so, yes, miscarriage, It's it's. Um, there's a lot of silence around miscarriage because we don't speak openly about it. Um, so, now, sorry, what was your... your... So I um, I'm, was going to ask, so when people do get pregnant, that they do get very excited about it, mm-hmm. especially if they've, it's a planned one. So is it... So I sort of grew up with my pregnancy history that we did like to talk about it a bit earlier to our friends and then when you, if you did have a miscarriage then it sort of normalised it a bit and you felt that you weren't the only one that had had a miscarriage so that there was some group support that it was so common as you've just said that it, do you have advice for I mean it's probably very individual about where who speaks and who doesn't speak about it but there is that thing about if you did have a miscarriage, you could support somebody and and know how to, you know, that it's more common than people believe. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think it is, it's up to the individual, definitely, and what they're comfortable with. 
Um, we do know from the research that we've done um, that women who've had a miscarriage before are more likely to tell more people, so their family and friends, that they are pregnant um, the next time around um, because they want that support around them. And the first time they may have been sticking to the 12-week rule and so when they did miscarry, they found that they didn't have a lot of people around them that knew. So... So, Jade, when someone does tell their loved ones that they've had a miscarriage, what should we say and what shouldn't we say? What are your recommendations there? Okay, so the do's and don'ts. Yes, please. I think (laughs) the most important uh, thing to remember, whether or not we're family, friends, healthcare professionals, we need to acknowledge that loss. So I think for most people that's the most important thing. Please acknowledge the loss and that's as simply as simple as saying I'm so sorry for your loss or I'm so sorry about your miscarriage mm-hmm. um, it means those few little words mean so much mm-hmm. just as people. you said from your own experience there Jade mm-hmm. yeah. exactly yeah. It, it really doesn't take take much um, I think you know there's there's other things that people can do you know ask Ask how somebody is going, listen, let them grieve. There is no timeline. It's very individual. Um, And I think in terms of don'ts, whilst people are well-intended and they really do mean well, comments like it wasn't meant to be or it's nature's way or um, it's so common really aren't all that helpful. In fact, they can be quite hurtful. Um, so I think those sort of cliches are best avoided. Mm. I was um, just thinking as you were saying that, Jade, we wouldn't say to someone who had cancer, well, it's so common. Exactly. We wouldn't. <laughs> no. That's right. Um, and I, I still remember this quote from one of our participants and um, she was talking in, in reference to a healthcare professional saying, you know, it, it really is common, which healthcare professionals often do as a means of trying to mitigate women's any feelings of guilt or self-blame. But she said, telling me I'm a statistic doesn't help me when I'm hurting. Mm. And I think that's very true. Um, Again, I think we, we need to remember that grief doesn't have a time limit. It's really important to let people grieve in the time that they need. Um, and again, I think comments um, offering um, advice um, can sometimes, again, be a little bit hurtful. So, you know, you're working too hard, you're stressing too much. Again, it, it can tend to feed into people's or feelings of, of self-blame that often occur because you're looking for answers. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that, that we as a society here um, are not good at talking about emotionally difficult things. Um, there seems almost to be a proscription against it. Mm-hmm. And we often search for meanings for inexplicable events and we try, as you say, to, to, to try and find some reason. And as you were saying, that can often leave the person feeling worse as if they're to blame and guilty as if they hadn't worked harder and if mm. or if they took more care of themselves that you know so I, I think w- what you're saying rings true to me in several situations about unsolicited advice people don't want that a lot of the time they just want to be acknowledged that's all you know absolutely sometimes you just sit with the, the the difficult emotion um and i've always thought if people aren't very good with words caring a bottle of wine some food soothing caring 
yeah. nurturing. Yeah. They're they're the best gifts for people that are struggling and grieving and not in a good good space. Absolutely, and that's what we found too. So even practical things yeah. like some flowers, yeah. bringing over something, a meal, yeah. offering to help with childcare, mm-hmm. or take the kids so so that um, she and her partner can have some time to themselves, mm-hmm. because that again is an acknowledgement of their loss, as well as helping out and giving them some space and some time to grieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find words very blunt instruments. That they're not often good <laughs> at at at. Uh, doing what they're supposed to do and as I say we're a society aren't very good at, at expressing them so yeah practical things like meals and we've all done that for friends that are sick you know drop around a meal or yeah offer to do babysitting or take the kids for the afternoon I think we've got to think more about that especially you know you was with with miscarriage because it's not as you say it's not something that people often think about you know I don't know I, I, I mean you must be battling this kind of um this almost a wall of people not wanting to talk about it a lot of the time. People often don't talk about it until somebody opens up and that's when they realise that so many people around them have experienced miscarriage too. And it's cathartic on both sides often um, because it's like, oh, yes, actually, (laughs) I've had a miscarriage too. I've certainly had this in my own personal experience where I've been with a group of friends had no idea two or three of them had had miscarriages until I sort of mentioned mine and then it was like, oh, me too, me too, me too. Jade, if people want advice or information about miscarriage, where can they go? Okay, so there's a number of places that they can go, a number of fantastic um, support organisations. The Pink Elephant Support Network is one. Pink Elephant? Oh, right. Yeah, I hadn't heard of them before. Okay, and um, so, yeah, there's support networks such as the Pink Elephants that deal specifically with um, support, um, as there is SANS and other organisations. We would love for them to talk to us about support and what they need. Um, So, as we've said, we've spoken to... So, who's us? How they get... Us. Okay, so us researchers, um, (laughs) Professor Meredith Temple-Smith and I, um, we are currently undertaking a study... Not so, not looking so much at uh, people's experience of miscarriage, but the support that they need at the time of miscarriage and who they feel is best placed to offer that support. Um, so at the moment, we're just putting our feelers out in terms of what format, format that might take. Um, but these are community consultations, so we'll either do large groups, small groups. And how do people find you? How do they find us? Okay, so if people are interested in participating in the study, they can contact us um, by email uh, at miscarriage-australia at unimelb.edu.au and register their interest um, to find out more about the study or potentially participate. Um, or I imagine you, you chuck that into Google, miscarriage-australia, and it will somehow find you guys? No? We are in the process of getting a Facebook page oh, okay. up, um, which will hopefully... And we can put it onto our... Instagram. Onto our Instagram. Oh, so if you go to 3RRR Instagram page, you will find the information after... Which is later this afternoon. a wonderful segue because I've been told that I haven't been uh, spruiking our social media enough. So thank you so much, Dr. Jade Velardi, for coming in the studio this morning. Fantastic hearing about your research. And we'll get you back in a little while just to talk some more. 
Lovely. Very, Thank very you. You can find us on our Instagram page, which basically just put in radiotherapy. Triple, <laughs> Triple, R, and Triple you'll R. You'll find my ugly mug all over it, which is um, not really an incentive. Um, plus, we've got a website. You can go to Triple R, and we've got a web page on three Triple R. It's a radiotherapy web page. Plus, I think we've also got a Twitter account somewhere as and, well. And Lots we do, of and an app, and an app, app radio we, on yeah, demand. Twenty twenty. We are everywhere. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're very lucky to have Professor Meredith Temple-Smith with us now, and she's going to be chatting about a very topical uh, concept gonorrhea everyone's friend gonorrhea (laughs) who hasn't had gonorrhea (laughs) no one (laughs) okay tell us Meredith just very briefly what is gonorrhea and why should we be worried about it okay well gonorrhea is one of very many sexually transmissible infections that we have in the world um and uh it's one of a one of the sexually transmissible infections that causes a huge amount of uh, distress and uh, morbidity, as we say, sickness in uh, the developing world. But we're also seeing an increasing rise in it in um, Australia, and uh, it, it's interesting that uh, diseases, sexually transmissible infections like syphilis and gonorrhea, often increase around times of war, um, and we're now seeing an increase in syphilis um, that we have not seen since um, the. Second World War in Australia. But nonetheless, I don't want people to get this out of perspective, so I'll just give you a bit of an idea, just talking about Victoria. And, of course, as you would know, Dr G-Spot, it's always very difficult to get current surveillance data, um, statistics on these things. So the most recent data we have is really for 2017. But in 2017, we saw um, 7,200 diagnoses of uh, gonorrhea in Victoria, um, and that was a, a big increase on the preceding year. But to keep that in perspective, on the same year, we saw 25,000 diagnoses of chlamydia. Um, and a thousand or over a thousand of syphilis, but I think the issue about gonorrhea is that it, in recent years it's been more commonly seen amongst men who have sex with men, but uh, now what we're seeing is a shift into the heterosexual population, and of course this can have a big impact um, on fertility, ectopic pregnancy, and miscarriage actually. So it is a bit of a worry. Yeah, absolutely. It does have those downstream effects. I know that um, some people I speak to take uh, gonorrhea, uh, I suppose, rather casually, like, oh, I just need to get some antibiotics and it'll be fine. What are your thoughts on that, Meredith? Mm. Well, I think the difficulty is that um, some people think that all they need to do is to take antibiotics and that is all you need. But, of course, in order really to make sure that you've um, got rid of the infection, you also need to make sure that your past sexual partners or your current sexual partner has been treated because it is possible to get gonorrhea again. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So, and, and the other really big issue that we've got to think about now is that um, uh, gonorrhea is actually able to change its shape. <laughs> 
um, it is actually able to mutate and become slightly more infectious. And so the antibiotics that we have developed over the last, um, well, really since antibiotics began, which was in the late 1930s, um, gonorrhea has always changed right from the beginning. It's managed to accommodate those antibiotics and become remain infectious in different ways. And so what we're seeing now is that uh, in some countries of the world, um, there are cases where um, gonorrhea has been resistant to the two common antibiotics that are being used, and so it's being termed as superbug gonorrhea. And the World Health Organization is really quite concerned about superbug gonorrhea um, because what do you treat people with, you know, if uh, if the antibiotics don't work? What do you treat them with? Well, uh, this is a really big you know, concern. Yeah. And I've actually had, I've been quite interested in this because I'm interested in medical history. So I've actually been looking at what treatments people had in the past. And I don't think people would be very happy about going back to those treatments in the past. So there were things like um, irrigation of the uh, urethra. Uh, so in, uh, and this was very common um, prior to the introduction of antibiotics in the late 1930s. So, you know, talking about early 20th century, um, people would insert, for example, within the male, they would insert some rubber, tubes, rubber tubing into the penis. Um, they would put... A <laughs> I'm looking at your face, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Malpractice is absolutely cringing for the audience. Very okay, empathic. so we have the rubber, yeah. we have the rubber tubing. Um, and then they would use maybe three or four litres of um, potassium permanganate um, would be attached to the other end of the rubber hosing and, and hung... that. You know that receptacle with the fluid be, would be hung high to ensure that gravity fed right into the penis, um, and so sometimes cold solution would be used, sometimes hot solution, depending on how far up the urethra you would want uh, that to go. So uh, in females, they'd also use irrigation, and that irrigation might take place two or three times a day for oh. weeks or months. And uh, you're joking. No, and in the 1920s, in the you know we. Tens, twenties, all around that time, we had large hospitals that were filled with people who were having these irrigations and washes um, that were happening several times a day. Very, very uncomfortable. It doesn't sound particularly successful if it went on for months. No, it wasn't actually. And there was a huge improvement uh, once um, the early antibiotics came in. Like penicillin and stuff like that? Yes, that's right. That's right. That's exactly what happened. They did notice a massive uh, improvement. But I think, you know, there are all sorts of other things that were tried as well. For example, heat treatment. So, um, well, obviously diathermia of things like the the cervix if if people couldn't get rid of it. But um, also just inserting um, um, an element that could be heated up to 44 degrees Celsius in in the rectum or vagina. Um, uh, At the Mayo Clinic in the US, they had a a big heat box and people used to sit um, in this heat box with only their head protruding and they would heat the outside up um, very, very hot. And I think some of that um, was based on experimentation that in the laboratory that they could see that heat killed the gonorrhea bug and they assumed that if they did it, you know, out there on the um, bench top, that it could also happen inside your body. So that didn't work either? Not very well. Kill surprise. I think the difficulty with all of these kinds of things, and you'd be aware with any kind of treatment, um, that there's always a few people who mm. seem to be treated, mm. whether or not they their bodies just gain control of the disease, the infection, it's hard to say. But there's always some success which makes people think that they're mm. on the right track. Mm. But, of course, in fact, they're, you know... It's often not. So you said we're, we're now looking at those old methods and shaking our heads. So what are we going to do with super gonorrhea? 
we have no answer for that at the moment. But I think the the big issue about um, you can't, you, doctors about can't treatment. say we have no answer. Not <laughs> allowed to say that. Well, obviously, people are looking at new antibiotics all of the time. But I think one of the the big issues is just to remind people that if they start taking antibiotics, they need to take the entire course of mm. antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And it's also really important to abstain from sexual intercourse while you're taking antibiotics, um, and then to make sure that you get your partners tested and treated. And, I mean, WHO keeps on saying we're just going to have to move back to these kinds of simple methods. Um, You know, we can't constantly be relying on antibiotics to fix everything. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome back, everyone. So, Meredith, we're wondering, how did you actually get into this field in the first place? Well, it's an interesting story, really. But, you know, when I was very young, I was interested in um, in sexual health more generally. And um, then as I had children and my children became sexually active, I became more interested in the sorts of things that, that, <laughs> that they might need help with. And now that I'm actually over a certain age... Dr. G-Spot, I'm interested you in mean sexual over health. over 40, Meredith? <laughs> no, I'm interested in sex, sexual health with older people. Okay. <laughs> Our fastest growing population yes. really, aren't they? Yeah, tell That's us right. about sexual health in the over 60s. Well, what we're seeing now is uh, increasing rates in STIs, actually, amongst um, the over 60s, which is an interesting thing. Of course, it's still overall a smaller proportion of people who get STIs, but we're just seeing increasing rates over previous decades. And, um, uh, you know, I I think that... um, it's a bit of a problem because people of my age actually didn't get any kind of sex education at school and a lot of them are repartnering after um, separation or divorce and, um, you know, there are so many dating websites and so forth. So there's a lot of opportunity for older people Giving to... Giving a plug for silver singles, are we? <laughs> <laughs> right. But there's certainly lots more opportunity, I think, um, for, um, you know, making friends quickly and... Uh, what we're seeing now is this increasing rate of STIs. So, so you were saying there, Meredith, that um, potentially people over 60 haven't had much sex education. Yes. What can we do to upskill our oh, over 60s? That's a good question. Thank you, Mal. Yeah, well, I mean, this is something that we are actually looking at in some other research at, at the University of Melbourne. And um, so we've been... Um, uh, doing interviews with uh, health practitioners and also with older people and uh, we've got a couple of students who are working on, on whether a website might be a good thing. There's actually no website for older people around their sexual health, which is an interesting thing. That's so amazing. It is. I mean, there's often it's often really hard to find good websites about sexual health more generally, although, of course, there's lots of information on places like the Melbourne Sexual Health um, uh, Centre in Victoria. Um, there's some wonderful information on that website and um, and apropos of gonorrhea that we were just talking about before and trying to find the words to tell a past sexual partner that you have had gonorrhea, yeah. there is a fantastic website there called Let Them Know which actually offers people advice on how they can tell past partners. So that's called Let that. Them Know? Let Them Know, yes. If you wow. just type in yeah, Let Them okay. Know on Google, it will come up. I think that's right, Jade, yes? Yes, yes, that's right. Mm. That's- so that's wonderful. That's yeah. I think that let them know sounds like a great initiative. I'm just wondering how it is delivered. There's probably no easy way to do it, is it? Than just being quite forthright and 
Mm. Hey, I've got gonorrhea. You what do might they, what, do. Did you know what they say on that? Uh, well, that they offer a range of different suggestions, mm. but I think I think a couple of things that you have to bear in mind is that um, I mean, firstly, you might not even, depending on if this was casual sex, you might not even know the name of the mm. person. Mm. Um, if it's somebody who you were, have been in a relationship with, it can be extremely difficult because maybe that means that you have had sex outside that relationship. Mm. Oh. There might even potentially be um, telling telling someone might, you might be frightful frightened of violence. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing is to be taken into consideration Absolutely. Well. All those wider implications. I'm, mm. in, I'm interested in the sexual activity of people over 60. I, I said, <laughs> but as, you're so young. As, <laughs> as I fast approach that age. Um, what, I mean, what is it, how is it different to sexual activity people in their 20s? I mean... I don't, I don't think there's any difference in, in the actual sexual activity. I just think it's the fact that a lot of people uh, don't think that older people are having sex and so for example you know if you present to a GP as somebody who's over 60 and you say you've got a vaginal discharge they're not firstly going to say oh I wonder if you've got gonorrhea or chlamydia that's usually not the case I mean uh, most um, health practitioners would assume that there'll be some other reason for that Mm. Um, similarly and and there has been increasing um, numbers just anecdotally I've been hearing about older people getting things like herpes for example Mm. and Mm. and doctors would not think of that as being um, the presenting complaint they would think of a whole lot of other reasons for that. What do you put it down to I mean you mentioned some of the factors before but to the increased uh, sexual activity people over 60? I mean, what's what's the reasons? Well, I don't know that there is... Uh, that maybe there has always been a lot of sexual activity amongst people over 60 um, and that we just haven't really, as a society, mm, okay. really acknowledged it. Um, but I think that we are seeing, as I've mentioned, this increasing... Mm. Um, um, we're seeing increasing rates of STIs mm. in, in older people and so that's, that's an obvious uh, sign of, of, of this when we are getting those diagnoses. Do you reckon like, you know, dating apps or casual sex apps mm. are, are contributing to that? Maybe also, I mean, I was just trying to think as I was asking the question, maybe because we're healthier um, 60 year olds and over are healthier now than they were say yes. 50 years ago So, well of course we have got increasing ageing uh, populations in, yeah. in pretty much every developed country of the yeah. world and I remember reading some st- stats that not that long ago that by 2050 I think in most countries of the world something like 40% of the populations will be over the age of 60. I mean it's just dramatic wow. how wow. and in some parts of Europe you've got um, you know almost a third of their population is over the age of 60. So everyone is, as you say, staying healthier and therefore wanting to remain active. And, of course, the other thing is that, truthfully, sexual health is related a lot to... um, Well, sex is related to intimacy, and intimacy is a really important part of remaining connected to people. And, um, you know, I think that's considered to be part of of healthy ageing is to also be having sex. Be intimate, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, you said you've also got an, in- an interest in uh, history of, uh, is it particularly with STDs or are there other aspects of history that you're interested in? Oh, I'm interested in all sorts of medical yeah. um, history, but I, but I am particularly interested in, in the history of, um, of sexually transmissible infections. And I, I think the thing is that, you know, the one thing that hasn't changed over all of the years is the stigma yeah. that's associated yeah. with them. And I think that's one of the reasons I've been fascinated by this. Um, I mean, there were really awful reports 100 years ago of... Um, of people um, presenting uh, to the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, for example. And I think this is one of the most interesting things. So in the mail register, they used to say, um, you know, they put down the diagnosis and they'd say there was a column that said, did you 
buy this or was it a gift? In other words, did you did you pay for sex or did you just acquire this infection? But the equivalent female register actually had a column instead that said uh, prostitute or amateur prostitute. Oh so there was goodness. no column for someone who was a wife or an innocent, you know, victim, I suppose you might say, of, of STIs. So a lot of people ended up in that amateur prostitute column. Absolutely. And I think the thing is that, you know, for, for many hundreds of years, people saw women as being the receptacle of, or the, you know, that they used to harbour STIs and that men acquired them because they would sort of ferment in women. Um, and it's only been really in sort of fairly recent times that we've realised that, that both men and women can transmit these infections. So what's your advice, Meredith, for the over-60s and everyone under it in order to try and stem this flow of STIs? Well, look, I think it's just important for people to be aware that um, if they're changing sexual partner, they need to get STI tests. And, um, and also, if they're, you know, if they're entering into a new relationship, they need to have that conversation before they have sex. Um, asking, you know, would you be prepared to, to have these tests? You just want to make sure that you're not transmitting anything. You want to keep everybody healthy. I was just thinking that, you know, one of the incentives for barrier protective sex um, mm. when you're in the reproductive years is to, to not get pregnant and that would yes. also have the effect of um, decreasing the transmission of a sexually transmitted disease. Mm. But once you're, uh, I guess, over 60, that no longer becomes an issue. Well, that is an issue. But I think for younger people, it's still an issue because we have the morning after pill now. So there are a lot of people who don't particularly worry about contraception. And I mean, I also do research around young women and contraception. I'm seeing increasing in qualitative research. Mm. So these are small numbers, seeing increasingly young women who say, I don't want to be on the pill. You know, I'd rather use condoms. But then, oh, we just didn't get round to where I did have one or you know there's all sorts of reasons um so i think it's really across the board now to be perfectly honest i feel that sexual health uh, in australia is not as good as it was 20 years ago i sort of feel and i think it's because everything seems fixable now we've got antivirals we've got morning after pill we've got all these things that people can take and they think a quick fix is possible whereas in the hiv era everyone was terrified and behaving themselves. Now, we've only got a few minutes left and I, and I said I was going to ask you this question. You're a mixed methods researcher which means you use qualitative methods which means asking people to give their narrative mm-hmm. and quantitative which is statistics. Mm. If you had to choose between mm. one or the other, mm. like you've forced choice, yep. which one would you choose as being the best representative of um, reality and helping research and furthering medicine? Oh, I'm afraid it'd have to be qualitative, right. really. I just sort of, you know, I started life as a quantitative researcher. I did that for a long time, but then I realised that, uh, you know, context changes all the time. It only has a limited um, a, a ability to tell us things we need. So definitely qualitative research. Well done on passing the Dr. Malpractice Mixed Methods <laughs> question that he big, asks everyone. Big, big tick for you. Meredith. Oh, yay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we should actually do a show on um, the way that research is done. Because I think, I mean, even for you know seasoned doctors like me, it's really confusing looking at statistics and, and, uh, and qualitative research. And so for the average person who doesn't look at this at e- every day, mm. it'd, be, it'd be baffling. So we should, we should get you back on for that show. Well, thank you. I, I always think that you know if you've got washing powder and someone says which one do you prefer you often prefer one under different circumstances and so that's for me the difference between qualitative and quantitative mm. usually in market research they don't give you a choice to say <laughs> one which one or the you other. like yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show uh professor meredith temple smith thank you also to dr jade Bellardi for coming on the show 
Dr. G-Spot, thank you for organising today's show. It's been it's, an absolute pleasure. Fantastic show. It's uh, wonderful when uh, the show gets totally produced for us and uh, I don't have to think. <laughs> don't expect it all the time, <laughs> Dr. Malpractice. Because normally Nurse EpiPen does that for me every she other show. She does a great job. She, thank you so much, Nurse EpiPen, for coming on the show. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.